Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. Just as in all the world it is also constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned from Epaphras, our fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord." to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross through Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, in evil deeds, Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death, in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Lord we need to be prepared for what we will hear today. We need to be ready to receive. This is huge in my estimation, Father. And the understanding that is presented here, vital to our faith. So I just ask that Your Holy Spirit would move among us and in us and would speak to us. May we hear Your heart, Father. May we understand Your will and Your purposes and Your Word. May we receive this letter as we pray the church at Colossae received it with hunger and with openness and with recognition both of our failures but more importantly of Your successes, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Before the Israelites made their way into the promised land, Moses gave an absolutely central prophecy. It's one we've looked at before, we've talked about and thought through, and I've referenced it many times over the years, but it has become more significant to me, I I believe, than ever before. Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And then further on, Deuteronomy 18.19, God himself said, It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, I'll hold him accountable to my words. 
Well, 1,500 years would go by. And in the far north of Israel, in the foothills of, of Mount Hermon, the headwaters of the Jordan, a place known as Caesarea Philippi, a Galilean rabbi asked his small cadre of disciples, Who do you say that I am? Just six days later, Matthew 17 verse 1 tells us Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Moses said it 1,500 years earlier, You shall listen to Him. And now, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God Himself repeats the same phrase, Listen to Him. After Jesus' death, His burial, His resurrection, on another mountain in the Galilee, Jesus gathered the apostles again, and this time He said to them, Matthew 28.18, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Is any of this unclear to us? Who are we to listen to? Who has the authority? In the first coming of Jesus... God unveiled the fulfillment of all prophetic promise, and that is simply this, the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. If there is one issue that is absolutely vital to the health and well-being of every follower of Jesus and the church itself, that's it. The supremacy of Christ. So, in 62 A.D., just 30 years after Jesus had returned to heaven, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Colossae. Colossae was a town nestled in the Lycus River Valley. We've already talked about it. In southwest Asia, kind of in between Laodicea and Hierapolis, uh, Colossae is the same town of Philemon. Same town of Onesimus. In fact, as we talked about recently, Onesimus was one of the couriers of this letter, as Paul will refer to later. But here's the thing about Colossians. As far as we can tell, Paul never went there. Never went to the city. Never went to the the town. It was a small town. In fact, of all the towns, of all the churches that Paul wrote to, the, the least significant. But on his missionary journeys, probably on his third Paul met and taught and changed the lives of some people, one in particular. And his mission did impact Colossae. And so a church would be planted there. Colossians were now in the the second of the prison letters of Paul, and I say the second because I believe in order that it goes Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians. But in these letters, the three primary letters, all four were written, you know, while Paul was under house arrest in Rome. The three primary letters of the four were were, were taking out Philemon because it was a personal letter between Paul and Philemon. But of the other three primary letters, they all share the same doctrinal focus. If you look at the letters of Paul, they, they tend to come in batches written in the same time periods, early 50s, then the mid-50s, and then the early 60s, and then the late 60s. And in these four different time periods, they come in clumps or in groupings, and each of these groupings have a theological focus. It's very interesting to look at that if you're a student of of Bible history and, and the writings of Paul. 
These three letters, that is Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, have as their primary focus what we would call Christology. And that is the nature of Jesus as the Christ. Paul looks at this, talks about this, and gets deep into it in a way that is absolutely stunning. I think you will be amazed as we go forward. Even if you've read and studied these books before, the words here are profound. Now, Paul, while he was in Rome, had a co-prisoner there, or at least a man who, who shared the burden of Paul's imprisonment. His name is Epaphras. And Epaphras, Philemon 23 tells us, Paul says he's Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. So he refers to him as a fellow there in Rome, a prisoner with him. Epaphras is the founder of the church at Colossae. So he's an important person, especially in the scriptures, having founded that church and now this important letter going to that church. If you look down at verse 7 of chapter 1, Paul says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow bondservant, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Epaphras also apparently had reported to Paul some concerns that he had for his beloved fellowship back in Colossae. Some unease he had over certain convoluted teachings that were now creeping into the life of this young fellowship. So I point all that out to say that while Paul didn't personally plant the church in Colossae, he did grandfather it. I know what it's like to be a grandfather now. We were on the way home and Cheryl got a text from, from someone here in the fellowship saying, looking forward to Sunday's teaching and hearing all about Rick and his grandson. You know. Well, that's all I'm going to say. Except that Silas rocks. Okay, moving on. Paul grandfather, like a good, good grandfather, Paul writes to the church at Colossae, declaring to them the supremacy of Christ in no uncertain terms. I will say this to you grandparents, don't underestimate the value of your words to your grandchildren in the name of Christ. Do not hold back. You see, because your kids, whether they're following faithfully or not, can't do a thing about it. (laughs) Talk to your children, talk to your grandchildren, present Jesus often and always. This is what Paul does. He just can't stop talking about Jesus. And so he writes in a grandfatherly fashion to the church there at Colossae about the supremacy, again, of Christ Jesus. I keep saying the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. My friends, that is the heart and soul of our teaching. That is the gospel. The good news is Jesus, is about Jesus, is focused on the Christ and in the case of confusions and, and disparities and erroneous teachings and even heresies, the character of Christ is always our purest and best answer. Sometimes you might find yourself in a, an argument with someone over doctrine, over theology, over scripture, over, over your belief system, over morality. Listen, Jesus is your best answer. Go back to Jesus. Talk about the Christ. All these points of disagreement fall away when Jesus is central. And this is what Paul does in all his letters. Surprise, we're talking about Jesus again. Because Jesus is the center. Paul writes to Colossae now declaring the awesome, amazing Christ nature of Jesus. Now think about how that sounds. The Christ nature of Jesus. I'm going to say that a few times this morning. The Christ nature of Jesus. This is the intent of the letter. Paul's letter here is small. It's only four chapters. Small in size, but it is absolutely huge in doctrine. J.B. Lightfoot said Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul was addressed. And Douglas Moose says Paul's letter has had an impact on Christian theology and practice out of proportion to its size. Its importance, this letter's importance to the church over 2,000 years is immeasurable and its relevance for the church of 2017 is truly stunning. 
the more I have looked into this and read it and considered even the problems going on in Colossae, even the concerns of the citizens there and of the church there, I am stunned at how closely it parallels our world right now, 2017. In this day and age, far too many Christians are embracing cultural morality and pop spirituality. Even without realizing these assumptions and and philosophies and lifestyles and ideologies, at their heart they diminish the Christ nature of Jesus. They bring Jesus down. What do you mean, the Christ nature of Jesus? You see, there's Jesus... Yeshua, the Son of Man, the humble human Nazarene, the Galilean rabbi, the relatable one. And then there's the Christ, the Son of God, Messiah, prophesied one, ancient of days, Savior, Jesus and the Christ. Well, Rick, you talk as if they're two different people. Of course not. They are one and the same. But the failure of many believers, and of course non-believers alike, is their lack of recognition of the supremacy of Christ in Jesus. Of who Jesus really is. Of what it means that as He comes to us as Christos, as Mashiach, Christ the Messiah, what does that truly mean? We miss that. Or misunderstand that. Or remove aspects of it. I'll give you an example here that may bother some of you this morning. But I'll tell you what, the timing is amazing to me. I can't even continue in Colossians without dealing with an elephant that's just wandered back into the foyer. And it's an elephant about the size of a shack. The shack. The book came out in 2007, written by William Paul Young, published in May of 2007. In one year, this quiet little publication sold over a million copies. By the second year, it had sold 10 million copies. Now, it has sold well over 20 million copies since its first publication. It's been 142 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list, number one among trade paperbacks. Last week, it shot right back up to number one on that same list. Because now it's in theaters. And it's just come out as a movie. Many of you are aware of this. It's starring Octavia Spencer as an African-American mother figure called Papa. Young's version of God the Father. Some of you have read the book. Some of you love the book. Many Christians do. In fact, the the Christian support of the book is, is... Great. Some see it as a valuable parable of of healing, answering the question, where is God when I'm in pain? Where is God when I'm hurting? And many Christians close the book and they say, look, I've read the book and I feel closer to God. Isn't that a good thing? And my question for them and my question for you this morning is simple. Which God? I feel closer to God. Which one? You see, as Paul said, there are many gods and lords out there. There are many places to which we give worship or ascribe worship. Now, yes, I read the entire book from beginning to end. I did so intentionally because of how it came out. And this was years ago, back in 2008, I believe, was when I actually read it for the first time. Read through it. It's touching. It's emotional. It draws you in. The story is compelling. And in the process, the author seeks to soothe the hurting soul. But it gives an inadequate and often unbiblical understanding of God. but, But Rick, but Rick, it's only fiction, right? I want you to think about something related to this book. Why was Moses banned from the promised land? Let's look at it. Turn in your Bibles back to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, book number 4 in the Torah. Watch what happens here. The people are grumbling again in the wilderness of sin. (laughs) 
They're frustrated. They're thirsty. They're griping against Moses and Aaron, and it's starting to really get under Moses' skin. Starting to frustrate him a bit. And the Lord tells Moses, beginning in verse 8 of Numbers 20, take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. I love the fact that that, that God responds to the people's grumbling with grace. We'd be in trouble if He didn't. He says, speak to the rock, Moses. I'll get water for the people. We'll take care of this need, this thirst. Well, Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to him, Listen now, you rebels. And the word rebels is a really nice translation for what he said. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Wait a minute, Moses, we? What, you're going to bring water from the rock in your glorious power? And then Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock twice with his rod and water came forth abundantly and the congregation and their beasts drank. He disobeyed the Lord and yet the Lord still provided water from the rock. Aren't you thankful for that? But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and He proved Himself holy among them. There is so much to that story I don't have time to go into this morning. How Moses in his disobedience messed up a beautiful picture of prophecy. In fact, I'll tell you all this much because you came to first service. I'm not going to tell second service this. The first time they came to a rock, God said, strike the rock. Moses struck the rock and water came forth. The second time, God said, speak to the rock and living water or water came forth. You know what that says? Think about the picture. In Jesus' first coming, He was struck that we might receive salvation and the Spirit of God. Now, now, all we have to do is speak to the rock and living waters flow. But Moses struck the rock and messed up a beautiful picture. And disobey God. In disobeying God, why wasn't he allowed into the promised land? Because Moses misrepresented God's intentions. It wasn't that he struck the rock. It wasn't even the disobedience. It was the misrepresentation of what God intended for the people, which was grace, which was water, which was care and compassion. But in striking the rock, God came across as angry because Moses was angry. And God saying, Moses... You misrepresented my intentions here. So let me ask you this question. What's more serious? To misrepresent God's intentions or to misrepresent God's divine self-revelation? To misrepresent what God means or to misrepresent who God is? There is a serious misrepresentation that takes place in the shack. And and you may have loved the book and maybe it ministered to you and touched you, but you need to recognize how it represents God. Is the representation in William Paul Young's book the same representation that God gives of Himself in the Holy Scriptures? We've got to deal with that one. Observant Jews won't even speak His name. You know that. They, They refer to God as Hashem, the name. Observant Jews won't even write God, G-O-D. They write G-D out of reverence, out of respect for God. And what did God tell Moses? You did not treat me as holy. And the Bible tells us He declared unto Israel that day His holiness. What are you getting at, Rick? We are ta- when we talk about Jesus... When we look at God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we are talking about a holy God who deserves our utmost respect and honor. Who deserves to be elevated and praised and viewed as He presents Himself. Not to be personified as Octavia Spencer. And I like her. She was great in the help. Excellent in hidden figures. 
as an actress, fantastic. Moses misrepresented God's intentions. I believe the shack misrepresents God. By the way, speaking of Moses, when do we see Moses in the promised land? You won't be able to go into the promised land because of this disobedience, and yet on the Mount of Transfiguration, there he is. Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. The next time we see Moses is when God was exactly represented in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is being glorified right up there before Peter and James and John. And Moses is there speaking with the one about whom he said, listen to him. Just as God the Father then appears in that Shekinah glory of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So back to this more immediate concern. Related to the shack, I want to give you a quote from my friend Edwin Handley. Chaplain Handley. I was talking with Edwin about this probably three weeks ago. And I said, you hear that the shack has come out in movie form. And we hadn't talked about this, so I didn't know his opinion, his view, anything about the movie or the book. And I said, did you hear it came out in movie form? And he said, yeah. And I said, what's your opinion? His words. It's spirituality without Christ. The cross is barely mentioned in the book. Jesus is subverted to second position in the Trinity, a lower being not as significant as Papa, the African-American mother figure. There's some strange things that are going on there. You've got to be discerning. You've got to recognize spirituality without Christ. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Matthew 28, 18. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, Hebrews 1, 2. And so Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae to decisively counter spirituality without Christ. That's what this letter's about. And the church is starting, the church at Colossae is starting to delve into spiritual things without Jesus starting to shift slightly away from Jesus. So, here's my point. Whatever you think about the shack, it's just a book. You know, like all the works and words of men, it will fade. But whatever you think about it, listen, if we don't get, if we don't understand what Paul writes in this magnificent little letter, we could miss, or cause others to miss, eternity. And that's how absolutely serious this is. We have one mission, brothers and sisters, one mission. Proclaim Jesus. How was this spirituality without Christ playing out among the Colossian churches? It's a very good question. And the best insight we get is actually from chapter 2. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2 just for a moment. I want to give you a brief sample. We'll look at this in depth in in a coming study. But this gives you a picture of kind of what's what's going on, what's beginning to happen there at Colossae that Paul has to address. Verse 8 of Colossians chapter 2. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Verse 20 second part of the verse, he says, Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not touch, do not, or do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So, commentators and scholars have gone over this with a fine-tooth comb to try and understand what was going on, what was the heretical teaching. Some refer to this as the Colossian heresy. Others read it and they say, heresy may be too strong a word. 
maybe the Colossian confusion. Whatever was going on, there were uh, uh, things happening here, and so scholars break this down. Let me give you four areas that they believe were happening, things that were going on. Real quickly here, emergent Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is spelled with a G, so spell it emergent Gnosticism. What is Gnosticism? It's the so-called Gnosis. It was this early heresy of, of a special knowledge. A group who said, we have a, a unique, mysterious, mystical knowledge that others don't have. And to get to that knowledge, you have to become like us, do what we do. Gnosticism. Well, the only problem with Gnosticism is it's a heresy that really exploded in the 2nd century. Paul's writing around 62. So it really didn't get its footing until uh, maybe the late 80s, late 90s of the 1st century, and then on into the 2nd. John the Apostle addresses it in his letters. But this Gnosticism, I say emergent Gnosticism, because there are those who think that this was already starting to seep into the church, this kind of mystical, superior knowledge that some believers had over other believers. That's dangerous. Some say, no, no, it was Jewish legalism. And there are hints of that here. I mean, you notice new moons and festivals and foods and Sabbath that Paul mentioned. Perhaps it's some of the same trouble that was going on in Galatia has now bled on over into southwestern Asia and is affecting the church in Colossae as well. Perhaps. So Gnosticism, Jewish legalism. Others say, no, it was Jewish mysticism. Self-abasement, the worship of angels, inflated visions. You know, today we have the Jewish mystical practice of Kabbalah. And Kabbalah is not... Torah Judaism is not grounded in the truth of the Word of God. It's this mystical thing based on the teachings of of the rabbis. Well, some say perhaps that kind of thing was going on as well. And then others add in what we would call Phrygian folklore. Phrygian folklore. Uh, Phrygia, P-H-R-Y-G-I-A. Phrygia, that, that was the name of this area in southwestern Asia before it was conquered by Rome. Under the Greek Seleucid Empire, it was Phrygia. And so there was a folklore there, kind of old paganism that was still in the air throughout that region. And there are those who say that was the problem at Colossae. Emergent Gnosticism, Jewish legalism, Jewish mysticism, and Phrygian folklore. Which one is it? I would say all of the above. In fact, you could jot this down. The problem at Colossae was spiritual syncretism. Spiritual syncretism. Syncretism is a mix, a blend, a bringing together of all sorts of things. And spiritual syncretism, the Colossian confusion, if you will, was like a spiritual smoothie. Blending in all these various ingredients of myth and of mysticism and of religion... And even today, spiritual syncretism takes place, in fact, in large part in our country. You've seen the Coexist bumper stickers I've mentioned many times. That's syncretism. Let's just mix it all together in one big batch and we can drink the smoothie together. Spiritual syncretism. Rachel made a comment when I mentioned this to her on Friday. She said, syncretism sounds like sinkhole. Exactly. It's spirituality without Christ. It's, it's finding that, that sense of spiritual fulfillment outside of Christ Jesus Himself. Douglas Moo writes, Paul also implies that the main deficiency of these false teachers found in Christ was, listen to this, His inability to provide ultimate spiritual fulfillment. The false teachers were probably people from within the Colossian Christian community itself. Why spiritual syncretism? What was the draw, both then and now? Why are people so drawn to this amalgam of spirituality? Listen to this. Wilson, in his book, The Hope of Glory, wrote that in first century Greek culture, quote, it seemed that the universe, in all its vastness and intricacy, was beyond human comprehension. Governed instead by a host of wrathful gods and indifferent spiritual powers, human beings could do little more than struggle against the relentless tide of fate. For them, personal and material insecurity, not to mention moral and spiritual indeterminacy, 
characterized the human condition, which amounted to little more than a fruitless search for meaning that ends with death and oblivion. I read that and thought, welcome to 2017. Welcome to the culture of the day. A a mishmash spirituality, combo plate religion. People in search of pseudo-safe zones. Looking for security in a dangerous world and in an uncertain universe and people will grab at everything to try and find fulfillment. To try and find security. To find satisfaction in spiritual syncretism. And that's the Colossian confusion. That's the problem this church is facing. A blending of myth and religion, as Paul wrote, Colossians 2 verse 8, rather than according to Christ. And when we see it in the church, it rattles me to the core. When believers in Jesus become syncretistic because they can't find the fulfillment in Jesus Himself, something's wrong. Moose said, in doing this, this is spirituality without Christ, they were questioning the very sufficiency of Christ. Let me put the question to you very simply. Is Christ enough? Or put another way, is Christ not enough? Is Jesus not enough for us that we need more, we need other, we need additional? We need to draw in for experience beyond who Jesus is, beyond the Christ. I want you to go back to chapter 1 and we're going to sit here just for a few more minutes and answer this spiritual syncretism. We're going to answer it head on with what has been called the Christ Hymn. I love it, the Christ Hymn. It's Colossians 1, 15-20. This little section out of chapter 1 and it's been quoted so many times, the Christ Hymn. In it, Paul rolls out an awesome, breathtaking panorama The centrality of Christ over both creation and over new creation. In the Christ hymn, Paul gives no less than ten descriptors of Jesus as the Christ. And I'm not going to sort them all out for you right now. We'll look at this and read it through. But I'm going to sort it into four themes that you can jot down before we're done. And here's theme number one, the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The image of the invisible. Just think about that. What an amazing statement. Christ made God visible. Christ made God seen. John 1.18 tells us He has explained Him. One of my favorite verses, the word explained in John 1.18 is exegeomai. Bible students use the word exegesis, which means to break down a passage in its full understanding, to make a scripture fully known. That's exegesis. That's what Jesus does of God. He makes Him fully known. Again, Hebrews 1 verse 3, He is the exact representation of His nature. Paul uses the word, 2 Corinthians 4.4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. says it there, he says it here. He is the image of the invisible God. The word image in the Greek is icon. It's where we get our word icon. Of course, our word icon is really a... a I don't know, kind of a culturally diminished version of the word icon. Icon is a portrait. It is, it's a form. It's exact likeness. More than a twin, we're not talking about someone who looks like someone else. We're talking about someone who is someone else. He is the image of the invisible God. So Christ has supremacy because God has supremacy. And God chose to reveal Himself in this world as the visible, tangible flesh and bones and blood Jesus. And no other image, no other representation can come close. You know, the problem with the shack in trying to express God 
regardless of what you think Young's uh, in, reason behind it was, the problem is that it's a new expression of the triune nature of God. It's a different way of looking at God, and it is not one that God gave us. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. That's the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. And ladies, let me ask you a question. In fact, men too. With this picture in the shack of a, of a mother figure. And again, Octavia Spencer, I mean, I, I love her. She, she's a great actress and she has really a way of, of making you feel loved. And, and you know, she just kind of draws you. You just like her. She's just cool, you know. And if you get that picture in your minds, and now the book says, well, this is, this is God. This will help you get closer to God. Let me ask you this, ladies and gentlemen. Do you feel closer to God through a mother figure like that? Or through a Jesus who refuses to see a woman stoned in the act of adultery? Or who was caught in that act? Do you feel closer to God through different misrepresentations or through Jesus? And how He loved. And what He taught. And who He healed. See, God the Father would have you draw near to Him, not through other representations, but through Christ. Do you realize that Israel had their own representation of God at the foot of Mount Horeb? It was a golden calf. And some don't understand this, but the golden calf was not another God. The golden calf was worshipped as Jehovah God. They needed a representation, so they came up with a calf. Any representation other than what God has given us is not God. He gave us Jesus. And that is the supremacy of Christ. In the beginning, John chapter 1 verse 1 was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The supremacy of Christ. Now, someone might read that, verse 15, and say, well, wait a minute, though. It says He's the firstborn of all creation. So He can't be as supreme as God. Please understand, if you're wondering, why does Paul call Him the firstborn of all creation if He is supremely God? Come back Wednesday night and I'll tell you. I do that to the Wednesday night crowd all the time. I'm just going to do that to you this morning. How is he called the firstborn? For now, just understand this much. What Paul is saying here is the Christ holds the preeminent supremacy of the Creator over all things created. And know that Paul is saying unequivocally here, Christ is not created. He has always existed. He is God. Verse 16. For by Him all things were created. By who? By Christ. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This is not only the supremacy of Christ, but number two, the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency In fact, if Christ let go of us right now, this entire universe would blow apart. I am absolutely convinced it is the power of Christ Jesus that holds it all together. When you get down to the smallest particle, what you discover is within the smallest particle, in the nucleus, that they call this, they call it strong nuclear glue, which is a beautiful scientific term. But the nucleus of an atom, it shouldn't hold together. It should explode. It doesn't. And scientists have never been able to figure out why it doesn't just blow up. Why all of us don't, the moment we're born, just go... In all things, Christ holds us together. He is holding together the sufficiency of Christ. Paul describes one who has created all things, having existed before all things, having authority over all things, which includes, he says, all thrones, all dominions, all rulers, all authorities. That includes the White House. Visible and invisible. So, 
how's that cosmic angst now? If Christ is supreme over everything invisible and unknown, I don't have to worry about it because He's supreme. He's sufficient. How's that political angst going right now? You know, as, as the commander in tweet, I mean, chief. <laughs> and President Trump just keeps tweeting out things and I keep going, someone take Twitter away, just take Twitter away. You know? And all the worry and all the upheaval that's going on even in our country and people are freaking out. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Christ is all sufficient. He's got this. He has got this, the all-sufficient Christ. Let me ask you a real personal question. Why would you choose to face life without Him? Why do we do anything without Him? When He's all-sufficient. He is over all things. All things. All things. You know how many times that word is used in this hymn? All It's the Greek word pas. It is the sum of everything. It is the total. It's the whole. And Paul uses the word all seven times. Why? I think he's trying to tell us something. He is absolutely sufficient over all things. The Holy Spirit's making a powerful point. Believers especially, we need to get this. His supremacy and His sufficiency now is over all creation. And even greater, it is over all new creation. Look at verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. i got to point this out real quick. We'll get into this more in the letter. This is the first time Paul refers to the church universal. In all his other letters, Galatians, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, he's talking to a local fellowship. But here, in the Christological teaching of Colossians, suddenly Paul refers to the church universal. All the church. And Jesus is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Christians, does He? Does Jesus have first place in everything? His supreme sufficiency is great, even greater, as I said, over new creation. Why? Because we accept it. His sufficiency, His supremacy is grander over the church than it is over the world because we bow to it. We acknowledge it. We say, yes, you are supreme. Yes, you are sufficient. But do we live that way? Is it just something we claim? Does Christ have first place in your business? Does Christ have first place in your family? Is He in first place in your finances? Is He in first place in your entertainment? Is He in first place in the bedroom? Is He in first place in faith? In theology? You see, what the Bible tells us is He is absolutely first place before all things. And yet even in the church, we sometimes, we treat Him as one element in a potpourri of religious, feel-good, self-gratifying, self-centered spirituality. I am not first place in my faith. Jesus is. Christ is. And we do this. We, we, we fool no one but ourselves if we sit here week after week with holy smiles all the while denigrating the nature, the Christ nature of Jesus. How, how, that, how am I denigrating the Christ nature of Jesus? Very simply by denying Him first place. Now here, He says He is the firstborn and here firstborn literally speaks of the first one born. It doesn't where he says he's the firstborn over all creation. And again, we'll get into that Wednesday night. But the firstborn from the dead literally means Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. First one to rise from the dead. It speaks of his resurrection. First one to be resurrected and then to live forever. And that's Jesus in that 
positional place of preeminence. He is the beginning of the church, as Paul writes. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That is all related to the church because those who are born from the dead are those who have been born again. And so Jesus went first and began the whole program. John calls him in Revelation 1 verse 5, the firstborn of the dead. And in Revelation 1.17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So, supremacy, first place, sufficiency in all things. And Paul pushes this even further into, number three, the substance of Christ. Verse 19. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Man. This is huge. The Greek word fullness is pleroma. It means the full contents. You know, it it was used, the word was used of a ship that's laden down, completely loaded, full of sailors, soldiers, rowers, freight, and merchandise. Can't take on board one more. It is completely full. That's, That's how the word was often used, a pleroma. And it's thought that the Colossian false teachers were using this word to describe and to sell their higher spirituality. You don't have the fullness like we have the fullness. So Paul comes along and he blows a massive God-sized hole into the side of the Colossian heresy of fullness. He says, in Christ dwells the fullness that is the embodiment of God. Full God, full man. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So the fullness of God. And by the way, as far as the old Jewish legalistic traditions were concerned, that were being drawn into this Colossian confusion, look over at chapter 2, verse 16 again. Paul says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. He's the substance. He's the point of the whole thing. Everything else in Judaism, and Christians who find Judaism to be kind of a buzz, please listen, everything in Judaism was a shadow Christ is the substance. So it makes no sense for us to rush back into the shadows when we have the substance before us, who is Jesus Christ. So in the midst of the Colossian confusion, Paul here is simply declaring the colossal Christ. Jesus in all of His glory, the best answer to any and all confusion. And that's really the heart of the letter. And we'll be watching this over the next few weeks as we study through this together. But listen, one last thing to tell you. If we bow to His supremacy, uh, if we proclaim His sufficiency, and even recognize His substance as God, it would all be as secure as a dilapidated shack. If not for one thing. And this is the thing that makes all of the supremacy, the sufficiency, and the substance matter. It is number four, the sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus. The supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the substance of Christ, reaches us in the sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 20. And through Him, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Listen. Where on earth... Do we find peace? 
Where in heaven do we find certainty? Either immediately or permanently in a world full of anxiety and abounding with uncertainty. We find it in the cross of Christ. We find it in the sacrifice of Jesus. He is not a God who remains distant to your pain. You see, He's not a a, a mystical form who appears to satisfy my questions or my hurts or my needs. No, Christ Jesus put on human flesh. He lived among us only to be pierced by real nails into real hands, suffering real crucifixion and a real final death. That's what God did. Christ who became Jesus, Jesus who is the Christ, why did He do it? Why did He take on all that pain? For one reason. Paul says to reconcile us to God. To reconcile all things to Himself. What does that mean? The word reconcile very simply means to bring people into harmony with Himself. To bring you into harmony with God. And here's the thing. If you get nothing else this morning, get this. Christ, not man, is the subject of reconciliation. Reconciliation, my friends, is not about you or me. It is about God. It is that we are reconciled to Him. Not that He is reconciled to us. And this is the, the misunderstanding that, that goes through. It's, it's, our, it's our self-centered humanity that, that gets in the way of this understanding. God, not man, must be satisfied. People shake their fists at the heavens and they say, I will not believe in you until I'm satisfied that I have all the knowledge I need to have. Until I am satisfied that you have proven yourself to me. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. you got to be satisfactory to God. He is the one who must be satisfied, not you, not me. The arrogance is stunning that we think God owes us something. You get one day and one breath and one good experience, you've gotten more than you deserve. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 64, verse 6, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Because God is holy. God could not be satisfied until the all-sufficient, all-supreme, all-substantial Christ was sacrificed for all. And man, when that happened, suddenly I became satisfactory to God through Jesus. Now I can have relationship with God because of what He did. God doesn't need to satisfy me. I need to satisfy Him, but I couldn't. And yet, He loves so magnificently. He provided for that satisfaction to happen at Calvary. And so the point of this letter and the point of it all is our faith must be Christocentric. A Christ-centered faith. Not a you-centered faith. Not a me-centered faith. Every one of us in our lives have different issues. Different pains, different problems, different difficulties. We all have them. Some seem worse than others. My problems are far worse than any of yours. (laughs) Or so it seems. And I sit in that place and I say, God, why are you not meeting me where I am? Well, you see, He does meet me where I am. But not because I've earned or deserved that. He comes to me here to bring me, to reconcile me to where He is. And a lot of the pain and a lot of the angst and a lot of the anxiety that we go through in life would dissipate if we had Christocentric faith. If we saw Jesus as more important than ourselves in our faith. And that's what Paul's talking about here. This is not a man-centered fable. This is a Christ-centered reality. Do you know Him? Do you believe Him? Do you trust Him? 
this colossal Christ became Yeshua, just Jesus, so that we could know God and be reconciled to God and dwell with God forever. Lord Jesus, we bow before Your grandeur, Your glory, Your magnificence. You are Christ who is all-sufficient. Christ who is all-supreme. Christ who is all-substantial. And we praise Your name for being Jesus sacrificed for all. In His name we pray. Amen.